0: Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language and is intended for adults. Listener discretion is advised. Listeners, hi guys! Welcome to season two of Martinis and the Macabre. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, you heard quite a story about our dinner outing earlier this week.
1: Best dinner ever.
0: Yeah. So uh, we got some gift cards at Christmas time, and we thought we'll put those to use. So, we went out the other night, and after we were done eating, we were about to leave, uh, I get up to put my coat on, and Billy was helping me with that. Because I'm a gentleman. He is. And as I put my arm into the sleeve and pulled it forward, who else but Nugget is standing at about that height, and he accidentally gets knocked in the eye. He didn't cry or anything. It wasn't... It wasn't a hard hit. Yeah, it wasn't a hard hit. I was just like, oh my God, I'm sorry. And thought the whole thing was over. Until we started to leave. (laughs) And as soon as we got up by where the hosts and hostesses are that seat people, Nugget decides to yell out loud, My mom didn't beat me. She just hit me in the eye. Ha! And people were sitting nearby eating. Uh, I was right in front of him. So I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that heard him because the place was kind of loud.
1: No, the host or hostess probably heard too. Oh,
0: uh, I don't know. But they definitely heard me howling in laughter as I was both extremely embarrassed but proud at the same time. And... Uh. I held the door open, doubled over in laughter, while Phaser and Billy were looking at me like, what the fuck just happened? So, uh, just goes to show if you're not following us on Facebook or Twitter, you need to be, because... We share that shit. This is the kind of shit that we share. (laughs) (laughs) So, I thought that was a very appropriate way... To bring in the new year with you guys. Something you can laugh at. Because I certainly fucking did. Because evidently I didn't beat him. I just hit him in the eye.
1: I don't think he was being an ass either. He was just being
0: totally sincere. Like, hey, if you
1: guys are wondering, she didn't beat me at all.
0: Yeah. This was, this he she... felt need to inform yeah. the whole restaurant. Don't worry. <laughs> My mom didn't beat me. I'm just holding my eye because she hit me in the eye.
1: We got to go to the car. You're probably wondering about my eye. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> it wasn't from abuse.
0: This is what our seven-year-old thought it was appropriate to make mention to everyone who could listen with an earshot, just to let everyone know. I got a shout-out.
1: I'm giving a shout-out to a listener in Quebec. Her name is Amelia. Amelia Cote... Tremblay, I think. I might have pronounced that wrong, sorry. So, bonjour. Yeah.
0: Yes, thank you, Amelia. Thank you for all the kind words. We appreciate your kind words. We appreciate you listening. And we will definitely be getting a sticker out to you soon. And thank you so much for that. And for all you other fuckers, get on iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Anything you say will not be held against you in a court of law. You can say whatever you want, but five stars would be appreciated. You can also, you know, rate and review us on any of your podcast apps where it gives you the option to do so. Leave us, you know, a a kind word or a review on Facebook. Anywhere you can. Spread the word. Retweet us. Tell everyone you know. That's all that we ask. We're not asking for too much, I don't think. But if you think we're worth something, give us a rating and a review.
1: You know, I saw on Facebook on one of the groups we're in, you know, about podca- one of the podcast groups, and one was just like, what do I gotta do to get some stickers from you guys? And everybody's like, donate to our Patreon. Donate to our Patreon. I'm like, just say nice things.
0: Yeah, say nice things and then say tell hi. us your address. We'll send you a sticker. Least we can do for you guys. Okay.
1: You might hear Sage in this recording. She is sitting on Erica's lap.
0: Yes, Sage is... Across my lap, breathing heavily, towards the microphone. Staring Billy down. Like what you gonna do, bitch?
1: What happened in <laughs> Korea stays in Korea. He ate a dog. I didn't know till after dinner. He
0: ate your cousin. I
1: didn't know till it was done. Yeah. I thought it was just a really spicy. And he was roast. like,
0: Mmm, this is good. I think I might do that again if I ever have the chance.
1: Did not know. Did not know.
0: <clears throat> all right, guys. So, all that being said, of course, welcome to Martini's and the Macabre, if you didn't know that already. Season two. Yay. The podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders, mysteries, and mayhem. I am your host, Erica. I'm joined by my husband and co-host, Billy.
1: Billy, dry as a fucking bone, Jones.
0: True. Billy is starting out his exercise week completely sober.
1: No booze.
0: And no cocaine habit. Not yet. I made sure to use the word habit. Habit. Not to upset your yeah. sensibilities. Yeah.
1: So resolutions are getting taken care of.
0: Next stop. Cocaine habit.
1: Cocaine habit. Trendy. <laughs> a trendy cocaine habit.
0: Trendy cocaine just habit. Just fashionable. Nothing like a problem or nothing. You yeah, know. not an addiction. No. No, no we don't I want that. Just like a party. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, starting at the new year, we've got kind of a big one for you guys. This is going to be a two parter. And they involve the murders of 10 Brillington Place. And the story. I had to kind of tackle it and figure out what would be the best way to tell you guys. And I thought we'd kind of have to start from the center of the story outward. So this first part that we're going to cover is the Evanses. And that's kind of in the middle of the whole story. We're we're, we're Pulp Fictioning this thing. Kind of. Yeah. You have to kind of know the central story before you can expand on it.
1: So, and it helps if you've ever watched Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction.
0: True. So, Timothy and Beryl Evans moved into the top flat at 10 Wellington Place in Notting Hill, London in the spring of 1948.
1: This is an oldie. You keep going. Usually around this time, I'd grab me a beer. I'm going to go grab some fucking water. I'm going to get some water. It's great. Fish shitting it. I hate water.
0: Okay. Fuck. All right, well, while Billy's getting some water, Water. (laughs) Tim, 24, and Beryl, 19, were expecting their first child. Now, Notting Hill was a rundown and squalid area at that time. I don't know if it still is or not. And 10 Rillington Place was no exception to that. The building was three stories with a flat on each level. And the first two stories had a kitchen, bedroom, and living room. But the top floor only had the kitchen and a bedroom. So, like, I guess an efficiency apartment, if not smaller. And none of the flats, now I understand this is 1948, but none of the flats had a bathroom. There was an outdoor lavatory, which was only 4 by 5 feet, for all of the tenants to share. So... All three stories, the different apartments or flats or whatever you want to refer to them as, had to walk outside to go to the shitter.
1: I'm so glad I didn't live back then.
0: (laughs) The property sat near a train track as well, which was nearly deafening when it went by. So probably not the best place to raise a child, but it was what Tim and Beryl could afford. As far as property
1: value goes, that place has to be a fucking steal.
0: Maybe... A steal? I don't...
1: I don't think you pay a lot. You know, it's like, okay, well, if you look at the fixtures, the fixtures are okay, except for the water room. I don't got one. But if you go out the back door, about 50 feet out, or, sorry, meters, (laughs) we've got a lavatory out there. You just got to walk it, you'll be fine. I got to speak up, because as you notice, there's a train. So we're only asking for, like... Just give me a high five, and this place is yours. I can't live here no more.
0: <laughs> well, both Tim and Beryl were small in stature. Tim only stood five foot five, which is one point six five meters. He had an IQ around seventy, which is considered borderline retarded, and he was illiterate. Do they say your don't they say your height in stone? Uh I don't know what they do with stone. If I thought you guys... stone was a weight. Is it? I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know, guys. God, sorry. Quit getting so
1: mad. Jesus. I'm not mad. You have a weird fucking way of not being mad.
0: It's my resting bitch face. I'm sorry. Okay. So sorry to all of the European listeners. We don't know things. I thought stone was a weight. It might be. So I'm gonna check that. You keep going. Billy might just be wrong. There it is again. Yeah. You see it? There yeah. it is. That's, I can't see it. It's my face. Nah, that's not wrestling bitch
1: face. That's just Eric bitch Yeah, that's
0: just me being a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tim, like I said, was pretty short for a guy. Uh, five foot five, which over here in the States is
1: fine. You know,
0: Average is about six feet. So he was over half a foot shorter than that. The low IQ, he was illiterate. He'd left school at a young age due to a mix of uncontrollable tantrums and also a chronic foot injury. He was known to be a habitual liar with a violent temper when he drank. So, maybe he liked the tequila? Maybe. Tends to make people angry.
1: Well, I mean, it's England. It's probably gin.
0: Eh, maybe.
1: It is used for weight.
0: Ha <laughs> ha! Fucker!
1: Well, I didn't know this was a competition.
0: I made it one and you lost.
1: I could deal with that. That's fine. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> also, Beryl, who was small herself, was quite immature. I mean, she was 19, and she proved to be a poor housekeeper and cook once they moved into the flat and were actually on their own. So, we're going to go play house. It's going to be great, and then she doesn't do shit, basically. When the baby, which they named Geraldine was born, their volatile relationship was even further strained as Timothy's pay didn't go very far and Beryl sometimes neglected the baby along with the household. Not the best thing for the mom to be doing, I suppose.
1: This is a shitty... This is like a depressing movie so far.
0: <laughs> they fought often, sometimes even striking each other, which was actually pretty common for them. So over the next year, they became friendly with the first floor tenants And, of course, like I said, they're on the top floor. The first floor tenants were John, who went by Reg, which is short for his middle name, and Ethel Christie. Beryl even confided to Reg at one point that Tim had tried to strangle her. So she got pretty buddy-buddy with the neighbors. She also allegedly told Reg that she was pregnant again, but didn't want to keep it. And against Tim's wishes she took pills and used douches, trying to abort the pregnancy unsuccessfully. The reason she didn't want the second child was that she wanted to be able to continue working part-time so she could help pay the bills.
1: So now she's not lazy.
0: Nah, I think with the household and the child, probably yeah. But when it came to paying the bills, she wanted to go to work and at least have the bills paid. And it probably, in her mind, gave her her break from, you know, the household necessities that she wasn't that good at.
1: Uh, it's just, Tim, I'm pregnant.
0: Oh, this is wonderful news. No, it's not. I don't even like the one I got. <laughs> I didn't say she doesn't like the one that she has.
1: <laughs> Speaking of kids, where's our kid at now? Oh. Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I thought she was with you. On the railroad tracks outside.
0: <laughs> well, around this time, some repairs needed to be done to the building and the wash house out back, and a crew arrived on October 31st to start the work. It's also important to note that the second floor tenant, Mr. Kitchener, was hospitalized for about five weeks at this time, so his flat was empty. So it was just the Evanses on the upstairs floor and the Christies down on the first floor. It was around this time that Beryl and Baby Geraldine went missing. And we'll come back to this, but let's get to know the other key player in the story a little better, which is Reg Christie. Of course, I said Reg is short for his middle name. He was actually born John Reginald Holiday Christie. That's nice. I suppose, if you want four names.
1: I pissed everybody off (laughs) when I made this fucking birth certificate.
0: He was born on April 8th of 1899. I <laughs> think when he was born, it's like... So what would you name him?
1: John Reginald, Holiday Christie. Which one are you going to go with? No, that's it. Whoa. <laughs> All four.
0: Yeah, why not? He was born in North Aram near Halifax in the West Riding of Yorkshire, which is a historic subdivision of Yorkshire, England. He was child number six out of seven... Born to Ernest and Mary Christie, Reg had a troubled relationship with his father. Ernest was said to be uncommunicative with his children, as well as abusive, punishing them for even the most trivial offenses by whipping them or forcing them to march for long distances. Now, on the opposite side of this, his mother Mary overprotected him and his four older sisters dominated him. So, no matter who he was around in the family, he was being emasculated one way or another. He began exaggerating or outright lying about his health or injuries to garner attention at a young age.
1: Reminds (coughs) me of that movie, Office Space, when he's talking to the counselor and he's like, Every day is the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? yes, today is the worst day of my life. What about tomorrow? Tomorrow will be the worst day of my life. Because I was like, God, that's messed up. (laughs) I just picture him little Reg waking up every morning just going, ah fuck. Let me go ahead and throw back some of this fucking water.
0: Why did you buy a big huge jug of water? It's cheap. That's Billy guzzling water.
1: Mmm. Flavorless.
0: Calorie free. Yeah, vegan water. Vegan water. So Christie's childhood peers would later describe him as a quote, queer lad that quote, kept to himself and was not very popular. He didn't make close or long lasting friendships, though he did do well at school. He sang in his church choir, played sports, and even became a scoutmaster. At age eight, though, something pivotal in Reg's life happened when his maternal grandfather passed away, someone he had actually been frightened of. While the body was laid out at the wake, Reg approached it and was pleased to finally feel the lack of tension and fear that he had always felt, and he thought this feeling was fascinating. He took to playing in the graveyard and enjoyed looking in the cracks of the vaults that housed the coffins. The children's coffins, especially. That's where it
1: got weird. he approached the coffin and finally felt the lack of tension and fear that he's always felt. And I thought, yeah, welcome to the human race. A lot of us feel that way. Because we don't have a shit life like you do. (laughs) And then now he's playing with, you know, in the cemetery and fucking around with kids' coffins. I'm like, okay, never mind. I'm glad I didn't say anything.
0: Yeah. He's a little creepy. At age 10, his sexuality was stirred when he saw one of his sister's legs up to the knee. That harlot. (laughs) Not even the whole leg, up to the knee. This confused him because he resented his sisters, but he was aroused as well. Author of the 1961 book, (laughs) 10 Rillington Place, Ludovic Kennedy, stated, quote, There was nothing unusual in this, for it is often through their sisters that small boys first find themselves physically disturbed by the opposite sex. But in Christie's case, it exaggerated an already tense situation. He had always resented his sisters bossing him around, and now to add salt to his wounds, he found himself physically attracted to them. He both loved and hated them because they aroused his masculinity and then stifled it. And this went on day after day, month after month, year after year. There must have been many occasions when he thought of his grandfather and wished them all dead. End quote.
1: You know, in this whole thing, I, could kind, of, I kind of understand. Not like the whole attracted to your sister thing because that's just creepy.
0: But, Only up to her knee.
1: But I could see somebody being a dick to you and you finding a certain body part attractive. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure Elizabeth Bathory had a nice ass. I mean, doesn't mean she's a great person. It's just... A physical thing is a lot more different than how somebody treats you. A person could be an asshole and have a five pound cock. So, you know, it just depends. Yeah.
0: Well, Christie won a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School at age 11. His favorite subject was math, particularly algebra, which is personally the most disturbing thing in this whole story so far, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. If you love algebra, we need to lock you up.
0: Yeah. He was found to have an IQ of 128 at some point in time. Despite this, he left school at age 15 and began working as an assistant projectionist in a movie theater. And though I couldn't find a reason for him leaving school at 15, it may be related to impotence. His first adolescent attempts at sex failed, as he could either not perform or couldn't finish, earning him the embarrassing nicknames Reggie No Dick and Can't Do It Christy. God. Yeah. In September of 1916, Reg joined the Army and served as an infantryman and a signalman in World War I. In June of 1918, he was injured in a mustard gas attack and hospitalized for a month. That sucks. But he claimed the gas attack left him temporarily blind and mute for three years. Hmm. No record of any such injury has ever been found, and it's generally assumed that he didn't have an actual physical malady, rather it was a hypochondriac's hysterical reaction to the gassing as a ploy to get more attention or sympathy.
1: I guess see temporary blind. It's mustard gas. Mute. That though, no.
0: <laughs> How... For three years?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blind and mute. You just spoke. Oh, shit.
0: <laughs> and he discharged from the hospital as, quote, Fit for duty which wouldn't have happened if you were really blind or mute. Yeah. They can't say you're fit for duty if you can't see and you can't talk. I mean, you gonna give a fucking gun to Helen Keller and send her out there to the war field? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Reggie left the military that year and returned home, re entering the civilian workforce as a clerk. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm I'm trying to do a Sage. podcast, ma'am. Come on, She's lady. whimpering at me. Uh, he also began frequenting prostitutes as they didn't necessarily have needs to be fulfilled when it came to sex. But he still felt humiliated as it was just a reminder of his sexual inabilities with regular women who weren't prostitutes.
1: So he couldn't do it with prostitutes either? He
0: could at times, but he still felt humiliated because it reminded him oh. of being doing it with non-prostitutes. In 1920, he got married to a woman from Sheffield named Ethel Simpson. He continued to have problems with impotence, though, and continued to hire prostitutes. The couple moved to Sheffield, and Reggie became a postman and a criminal. He stole some postal orders and was caught and sentenced to three months in prison. Then in 1923, he was convicted of obtaining money on fake pretenses and a violent conduct and received 12 months of probation we got out he was temporarily blind and mute <laughs> for three more years in 1924 when he was 25 Reg was put on probation at the post office related to the charges of violence and I don't understand why was he w- not fired yeah when he was caught stealing the packages you know a, a year before why was he not fired then No, not only did they not fire him then, but he was only put on probation a year later. And it wasn't even for the stealing of the packages. It was for the charge of violence. You guys are weird when it comes to your post office. Stories began to circulate about his hiring prostitutes as well. So, for some reason, four years into the marriage, Reggie left Ethel and moved to London, though they didn't divorce. I don't know why he left her because of these rumors. You would think that maybe if she got word of him, she would leave him. But long story short, they split up, but they stayed married. And it was very weird. So, four years later, Christy was in prison again for two charges of theft, for which he received a nine-month sentence this time. When he got out, he job-hopped and ended up living with a prostitute because... That's just what you do when you hang around a bunch of prostitutes and you're a criminal. He's good at it. Yeah. But he hit her in the head with a cricket bat. That's how you play cricket. (laughs) And got another six months in prison. Then a few more years later, he stole a car from a priest that was trying to help him. And back to prison he went. Because that's what happens when you steal cars from priests. Plus, there's a eternal damnation thing. Yeah. So, when he got out this last time, he and Ethel had been separated almost 10 years, but never divorced in that time. And he just, out of the blue, asked her to come and live with him. And she was lonely, so she said yes. What else am I doing? <laughs> really? At some point, Christy was hit by a car and hospitalized, which fueled his hypochondria.
1: That would fuel anybody's.
0: He would stay home a lot, using his many quote-unquote ailments as an excuse. Over a 15-year period between two different doctors, he was seen 173 times in their offices. So... That's a
1: lot. Do you think doctors just love hypochondriacs? I'm sure they don't. Why not? That's job security. You know they're going to fucking come in for a visit. That's a paycheck.
0: Yeah, but even though you may think, oh, they're a hypochondriac, or oh, they're a drug seeker, there's always that, what if they're not in the back of your head? What if I'm wrong about this? So, I I think it probably bothers them, because there could be something else, and they just don't know it.
1: I know one thing. It's a good thing this guy, Reg, isn't alive now, because with WebMD... He'd lose his shit.
0: Yeah. So, 173 times in 15 years. That's so many times. You know, a normal, somewhat healthy person goes to the doctor once, maybe twice a year. If you have a few ailments, you might go like three, four times a year. But, damn. That's a fucking lot. In 1937, the couple moved into the top floor of 10 Rillington Place. And this was over 10 years before the Evanses would arrive. So they moved in in 1937. And then the next year, they moved down to the ground level when it became available. And they wanted to have the extra space and they would be closer to the wash house.
1: Which you need on diarrhea days.
0: I didn't know you dedicated whole days to diarrhea.
1: I don't plan for it. But it happens. It won't now because of the wheat bread I got, I'm uh, sure.
0: I don't know. Your body's not used to healthy stuff. Oh, God. It may have undesired effects on your GI tract.
1: It is the craziest wheat bread I've ever seen in my life. I could bury a slice of that bread and wheat would grow.
0: It's going to be gritty. Oh. And you're going to have to pick seeds out of your teeth. Ah, oh, God. I don't even eat that wheat bread. <sighs> and you know me. I like healthy food. <laughs>
1: this is gonna suck this is gonna take a. this is just uh, sucking
0: them out in your in your grill Mm.
1: yeah wash it down with water Mm mm-hmm yay
0: you can get some flavoring for your water
1: oh that adds sugar i can't do it
0: no some of them are sugar free
1: but see on my plan it says you can have a cheat meal or a coke i'm gonna do that
0: Uh, that doesn't mean you can have like a 44 ounce big gulp.
1: No, no, I'm not saying not saying one from the gas station, but I mean, a can of Coke a night, that's not too much to ask.
0: You're going to get a fucking sugar high off a of Coke. I know. <laughs> no or, or you'll splurge it on ketchup.
1: I can't have ketchup, guys. I can't have ketchup. I'm not allowed to have ketchup. Sorry. That's oh, like blasphemy in I, this house. I thought this was America. <laughs> I can't have ketchup.
0: What happened to our little... Ketchup bottle black. That said I put ketchup on my ketchup. I don't know. I'm about to cry. (laughs) We used to be a major ketchup household. We've kind of shifted over to ranch, but ketchup is still a big part. It always holds a place in our hearts.
1: It's it's in our family photos.
0: (laughs) We're always holding the bottle ketchup.
1: (laughs) Ketchup, ranch, and sriracha. Those are always in our family photos. (laughs) Not the ones taken and printed out like from an iPhone. I mean like the studio.
0: So, yeah, so 1938 was the time they moved down to the lowest floor. And at the beginning of World War II, Reggie was able to join the War Reserve Police, despite having a lengthy criminal record, as it was never checked. This made him a reserve constable and gave him full police powers, which he took way too seriously earning him the nickname, the Himmler of Rillington Place. So basically, when the war happened, people got sent off to war. They needed extra people to do the policing. And he basically just walked on and said, yeah, I'll do that. And they were like, okay, here's your badge. And let him police people how he saw fit. (laughs) Do you want to be a constable? I want to be a constable. You're a constable. Yay. All right. Cheers. During the four years he held the position, he took advantage of Ethel's frequent visits to relatives in Sheffield, using the time to follow women. I'm sure some of those times using his war reserve police status to aid him in that. He met a woman at the police station who he started sleeping with. The affair lasted until mid-1943, when the woman's husband returned from the war and found Reggie at the house with her. Reggie was politely asked to leave by way of a pummeling and being thrown out the front door.
1: He's, uh, oh God, what's the name we gave him in the military? Jody. Jody? I believe it's Jody. I'm gonna look that up. It's been so long since I even thought of that term. Jody is the guy that takes care of your wife when you go to war.
0: Takes care of, Uh quote unquote.
1: Nobody likes Jody.
0: Mm -mm. Don't be a Jody, guys. So, he gets pummeled, gets thrown out. This may have been a tipping point for Reg, as his crimes became much more serious shortly after, but wouldn't come to light for years. And we'll get back to those in a little while. But now that we have a background on both Tim and Reggie, let's get back to the disappearance of Beryl and baby Geraldine. So there's several different versions of events as told by Tim and his neighbor Reggie about the time Beryl and Geraldine disappeared in early November of 1949. With Beryl missing and Tim being out of communication with his family, Tim's mom started trying to track him down she ended up finding him staying at his aunt's house in Murther Vale. His mom and aunt thought he was acting suspicious and figured he was probably lying about something. Beryl and Geraldine also never made it there to connect with him, and Tim's mom found their apartment at Rillington Place empty. So when confronted with this information, it did not take Tim long to break down and walk himself into the Murther Tideville Police Station. Tim's statement to the police was, quote, I have disposed of my wife. I put her down the drain. Police were confused, obviously, as he didn't say she was dead or that he killed her, for instance. Tim continued saying he hadn't killed Beryl, but that she was dead. He was afraid to mention Christie due to Christie's former police status, though this was who he was referring to now as a quote unquote stranger. He said a stranger he had met had given him some kind of medication to cause spontaneous abortion. He claimed that Beryl took the bottle from him, but that he warned her not to use it. But he said Beryl had done just that when he left for work the next day. He claimed he came home to his wife lying dead. Tim, afraid the police would think that he killed her, then put her body headfirst down the drain hole in front of the flats. He said he then gave his resignation at work and arranged for someone to look after Geraldine before heading to Merthyr Vale, where his aunt lived. Now, while Tim was still in Wales being questioned, police in Notting Hill were notified of his claims, and they went to investigate the drain. It took three grown men to remove the manhole cover, so it seemed highly unlikely that a five-foot-five, hundred 140-pound man could have done it alone. Oh... And there was no body in the drain, too. So, the Notting Hill Police notified the Merthyr Vale Police of this. And they then notified Tim of this while he was still being questioned. And they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's not even a body down there. He immediately changed his story, saying that he would now tell the truth. So, Tim's story that he said was the truth... He said there was no stranger. It was his neighbor, Reggie Christie, that had supposedly put Beryl down the drain. He said he had only claimed he himself had done it because he was afraid of Christie. He recounted Christie offering a medication to Beryl to induce abortion, but Christie warned it could be toxic and kill her. Beryl still wanted to try it, and Tim claimed she must have after he went to work on November 8th.
1: You must really not want to have that
0: kid. (laughs) He said he came home and found her dead, bleeding from every orifice, which doesn't sound like uh, a medication.
1: It sounds like, what is that thing
0: that people get? Ebola? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think she had Ebola. Read,
1: Read the Hot Zone. Scariest fucking book you'll ever read in your life. It's an
0: excellent book, and it's true, and it's frightening. It actually made me want to be a forensic pathologist when I was younger. And then I was like, fuck that. That's too much school. Mm -mm." And it's, you know, scary. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tim eventually admitted to helping Christy move Beryl's body, but only down to the tenantless second floor flat, the one that was empty because the guy was in the hospital, and only because Christy couldn't do it on his own. Christy told him he would put the body down the drain once it got dark. Christy also supposedly offered to take Geraldine as he knew of some people that would take care of her for a while. This tells you right there that this was a completely different fucking time when your neighbor says, Oh no, I, I got a guy or I got a gal that'll take your kid off your hands for a while and watch him for you. And you're like, okay. That would never happen nowadays.
1: That's what you know, I was just about to say it too. It's like that's what we're missing in this society. Just neighbors blatant helping Neighbors trust. helping you out, man. Nowadays you can't even get a cup of sugar, let alone I'll help you hide the body. Nothing like that. Shit, dude.
0: That's what we need more of.
1: <sighs> yep, that's why I'm buying a grill this year. We'll cook out, let the smell waft over and I'll be like, Come on over, guys.
0: I've I got, got a body I need to have hide. Have a
1: burger. I need help. You start small. (laughs) Can I borrow a shovel? Sure. And then you make sure to give it right back. Hey, can I borrow a screwdriver? Sure. You give it right back. You're like, hey, can you grab this bitch's arms? (laughs) You don't open with that. You got to build up to that.
0: Right. Baby steps.
1: I'm the best neighbor in the world.
0: (laughs) So after telling Tim, hey, I know somebody that'll watch your kid. And Tim going, okay, okay. Christy supposedly told Tim to leave all of Geraldine's things and then to sell the rest of the furniture and leave, which Tim did, obviously, because they found him in Merthyr Vale. Tim said he returned to the flat on November 23rd to inquire about who had Geraldine, because, you know, let's wait a couple weeks and try and figure out who has my fucking kid, but different times. So he was inquiring about who had her and how she was, But Christy told him it was too soon to see her and that Tim then went back to his aunts. Okay, I don't know who has my kid. I don't know how she's doing, but I gotta go. Bye. Bye. Yep. The police only did a superficial check of 10 Rillington Place, the house, and the garden, just based off of what Tim was telling them.
1: You only have so much red string. You can't do it for every fucking case.
0: (laughs) Strangely, in Tim's mostly empty flat, they found clippings from a newspaper covering a sensational torso murder case, known as the Stanley Setty case. This looked incriminating, except when you consider that Tim couldn't read. And then it kind of looked planted. (laughs) But the police didn't catch that. (laughs) It looks like he
1: was studying this. He can't read. Oh, Shit.
0: He was looking at the picture.
1: That could have really been what it was, too.
0: I want not do that. That's probably what he sounded like, too. <laughs> <laughs> they did find a stolen briefcase, though, and arrested him for theft and took him to London for further questioning. What do you think of that? They failed to notice a human thigh bone propping up a fence in the back garden or the skull that the Chrissy's dog had dug up.
1: <laughs>
0: hmm... I would say that's definitely just a once-over. So, we've got Tim's side. Now, let's look at Reggie's side. So, Reggie Christie was called in for questioning, and his questioning lasted six hours. He claimed that Tim's accusations were ridiculous and stated Tim was a known habitual liar who fought with his wife all the time. So, pretty much his story was, uh, uh. nuh-uh. Mm-hmm. In his version... Reg claimed that he had seen Beryl last on November 8th around noonish, heading out with the baby. Around midnight that night, the Christies were woken up by a loud thump coming from somewhere upstairs. They knew the second floor flat was empty, so they assumed it was the Evanses. There weren't any more loud sounds, so they just went back to sleep. Now, I don't know how loud of a sound it would have to be to travel down two floors, but it had to have been pretty loud, I would assume. Yeah. So, they go back to sleep, and then the next day, according to Christy, Tim said Beryl took Geraldine and went to Bristol. Beryl hadn't told anyone that she had even planned to leave and hadn't said any goodbyes. But Christy said Timothy stuck to that story. The next day, Tim came to see Reg and told him he quit his job and that he was selling all of his furniture and going to go be with his wife. He did get rid of the furniture but then got on a train going to Merthyr Vale, not Bristol. But the police didn't see an issue with that either. He did agree that Tim returned on November 23rd, but only to tell Christy that Beryl had left him with no mention of Geraldine. Because why not travel to the city you used to live in just to tell your neighbor, yeah, I'm all alone, bye, and go back to Merthyr Vale? Because that's what anyone would do. Gotta go back to Martha Vale. Bye. Yeah. I'm just gonna swing by. Let my neighbor know. Oh, yeah. Sad story. My wife left me. Okay. See ya. So, with Christie's police pass, as Tim had feared, the officers took him for one of their own. But when Beryl and Geraldine still failed to show up or relocated, they then returned to the house to search more thoroughly. This time, they wanted to look in the wash house, but the door was stuck. I'm assuming that Reg wasn't there at the time because Mrs. Christie brought them a metal rod so they could try and loosen it. Once they got it open, inside, wood planking was leaning against the sink in the dark. And when one officer reached behind the wood, he felt something, and they pulled the wood away. They found a package-like item wrapped in a green tablecloth and tied up with a cord. Mrs. Christie said she had no idea what it was, that she'd never seen it, so they pulled it out of the dark and untied the cord, and two feet fell out. (laughs) Beryl's feet. They searched further through the wash house and soon discovered Geraldine's body under some wood behind the door. A 16-week-old fetus was also found, though it's not clear if it was expelled from Beryl when she died or shortly after, just visible due to... Just the overall decay of Beryl's body, or if this was something that was found on autopsy. But I, I do know that they did find a 16-week-old fetus, which means that she actually was pregnant.
1: Do you think this has something to do with the thigh bone?
0: I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> so the autopsy revealed that Beryl and Geraldine had both been strangled. A man's tie was found around Geraldine's neck. Beryl appeared to have been strangled with some kind of cord or rope. But that was not found around her neck. She also had bruising over her lip and right eye, as if she had been hit. No substance was found that Beryl would have taken to abort a fetus, but bruising was found in her vagina. Yet the pathologist failed to get a vaginal swab to check for semen, of course. Well yeah. At least he didn't, like, you know, get it and then lose it like we keep hearing about in all these cases. Then this time he was just like, fuck it. I ain't doing it. (laughs) Before Tim had even gotten to London to be questioned about the stolen briefcase, photographers and reporters were already stationed outside of the police station. And he kind of knew immediately that he was going to be charged with more than just theft of a briefcase. Police showed him the pile of clothing taken off of his wife's and daughter's bodies and told him they had both been found dead and he started to cry. Because according to him, he only knew that Beryl was dead he was unaware at this time that Geraldine was dead if you believe his story Evans allegedly gave two more confessions to police that night he admitted that he was responsible for the death saying he killed Beryl because of her running up debts yet she wanted an abortion so that she could keep working and help pay the bills
1: this is a roller coaster ride from start to finish
0: yeah doesn't make much sense He said they fought and he hit her and strangled her with a piece of rope the night of November 8th. He wrapped her in the tablecloth and moved her to the vacant flat downstairs until midnight, and then he moved her to the wash house. He claimed he left Geraldine at home alone all day while he went to work for the next two days before strangling her and putting her in the wash house as well. How big is
1: this fucking wash house?
0: Well, it's five by four. That's it. That's it? That's it. Five feet by four feet. Now, there are a lot of discrepancies with his quote-unquote confessions. First, the idea of him killing Beryl over debts. He's the one that didn't want her to have an abortion, which would mean more debt. And she did want to have one so she could keep working to pay bills and not contribute to more debt by having another child. That whole thing just doesn't make sense. Why are you going to kill her over that? Next, he claimed he put her in the wash house on the night of November 8th, which would have been impossible as the carpenters were still working on the main structure and wash house for several days after that. Well, I I got
1: some dates mixed up. That's not news.
0: You're not news. Damn. Mm. Damn. Well, just know that there were still carpenters there, Yours. since you want to be a Debbie Downer. You're as cold as
1: a pimp's heart.
0: He also said to police two separate times that he locked the door to the wash house when he couldn't have, as the carpenters went in and out without having a key. Also, the wood that covered the bodies was from flooring the crew had pulled up, but they hadn't done that until November 11th. And they even recalled Christy asking if he could have the wood, not Tim. That means it wasn't available on the two dates Tim said he had placed the bodies in the wash house the 8th and the 10th. He stated he left the rope around Beryl's neck, but no rope was found. And Tim gave no reason for killing Geraldine. His claim that he left her alone in their flat for two work days seemed implausible, as no one heard any crying. And surely she would have at some point. I mean, you've got a one-year-old in an apartment all by herself all day long, no food, no diaper changes, Uh, surely the kid's going to cry. And if they can hear thumps from two fucking floors up, surely they would hear a kid crying. Don't call me Shirley. (gasps) Shirley? You going to cry? You going to cry, Shirley? No.
1: (laughs) I have something in my eye. Excuse me.
0: (laughs) He said that he sold all the furniture, but Geraldine's stroller or pram, whichever you'd like to call it, in her high chair were seen in christie's flat by a friend of barrels who stopped by looking for her she claimed that christie stepped out to tell her that they had moved away and she actually saw the items through his open door so if he indeed had given those items to christie it would seem that tim alleging christie took geraldine to give her to someone to care for her was true meaning tim couldn't have killed her because some unknown stranger was Quote-unquote, watching her, taking care of her. And lastly, many people believed the language used in Tim's confession was too, quote-unquote, advanced for his limited intelligence.
1: I thought that too. I thought that too. He should have been like, lady, go bye-bye, go down hole. (laughs)
0: Lady, go down the hole. (laughs) So... This led several people to believe the statement could have been guided or possibly even dictated by the police. On January 11th of 1950, Timothy Evans went on trial for the murder of his daughter, Geraldine. The prosecutor didn't want to risk trying Beryl's case first because there was a potential for ending up with a verdict for manslaughter if the jury actually found that Tim had been provoked during his and Beryl's supposed argument. But evidence involving Beryl's murder was allowed to be included in this trial, which is totally fucked up in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, That has nothing to do with the case you're trying him for, and he's not been found guilty in that case. So why is it allowed? I don't get that. Tim had told his confession stories many times while awaiting trial, but recanted at the very start of the trial and stuck to his story of Christy being the killer. Christie himself was the star witness for the prosecution, testifying that all of Tim's claims about him were lies. None of the jurors noticed the discrepancies in the confessions given by Tim. Ethel Christie's police statement conflicted as well. She told police that they used the wash house each day to get water, but had never noticed anything unusual. This would mean that if Tim's confessions were true she would have gone into the wash house at least two dozen times between the placement of the bodies and the wood in the wash house and them actually being discovered. But she had never seen or even smelled anything. Nothing was, you know, astray in that five by four foot room. And even their dog evidently hadn't noticed anything as there weren't any signs he had tried to get into the wash house or dug around it. This being the same dog that dug up a skull, but we'll have to get to that in the next episode. And yet, in court, under oath, she said they never used the wash house. And no one noticed that this contradicted her plea statement. And I'd like to know, what the fuck were they doing if they never used the wash house? If that's where you go to piss and shit and get water, hmm.
1: I don't want to know.
0: Even if the jury believed her, wouldn't they be like, Ew, you's a nasty bitch. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> One
1: person in the jury was just like, ew. You could hear it in the whole thing. You know, yeah. She's on the stand.
0: I haven't like, been in that wash house in three weeks. We never used a wash house. Ew. <laughs> ew, grody. The carpenter's statements read that they had kept their tools in the wash house while working there those two weeks and claimed to have cleaned the place out on the 11th. But yet Tim said, oh, I put the bodies there on the 8th. But the carpenters never noticed the bodies, the wood, or an odor. The jury didn't seem to notice that discrepancy either. And In actuality, no one's statements to police or on the stand matched Tim's confessions at all. And no physical evidence tied Tim to the murders. Once the jury was handed over the case to make their decision... It only took them 40 minutes to declare Timothy Evans guilty of murdering his own daughter. And, and he was time
1: it took to watch The Walking Dead.
0: Yeah. With no evidence directly tying him to the crime. With all of these contradictions. Guilty. And immediately sentenced to death. Like, right then. Sentenced to death. He tried for an appeal in February and was unsuccessful. And on March 9th. Now, mind you, this trial just started in January, and the murder supposedly happened at the beginning of November. Less than six months later, on March 9, 1950, just two years after starting a family and moving into 10 Rillington Place, Timothy Evans was hanged. Wow, shit moved fast back then. <laughs> Man, that's
1: swift. That's what they mean when they say swift justice.
0: Now, there's an alternate version of events In his 10 Rillington Place book, author Ludwig Kennedy spelled out a completely new version of events leading up to the disappearance and murder of Beryl and Geraldine, and he probably investigated a lot more thoroughly than the police had done. They don't even see fucking femur bones holding up fucking fences. He states that Beryl had told her friend Lucy that Reg Christie had offered to perform an abortion for her, like, Not pills to take, not some potion to actually do a physical abortion. Timothy found out about this on November 1st and told Christy, no fucking way. Christy claimed to have knowledge of medical procedures from his time with the War Reserve Police. Why that makes you a medical personnel doesn't make sense to me, but that's what he claimed. Because there are other people that have said that He claimed that with them, too. And he actually said that he'd performed several abortions before. Jeez. Tim stood his ground and still refused and said, fuck no. When he went to tell Beryl it was off, she said she trusted Christy and it was still going to happen. On November 7th, while Tim was at work, Beryl made arrangements with Christy to do the abortion the following day. She told Tim again that night, and he claimed he didn't believe her. An argument erupted that included slapping and shoving, as was their norm. And the next morning, Tim went to work, and the carpenters arrived at 8 a.m. to continue the work to the building in the wash house. And after that, Beryl and Geraldine weren't seen again by anyone except Tim and possibly Reggie Christie, if you're believing Tim's story that he came home found her dead, and Reggie Christie and him move the body. Now, this is probably the closest to the truth that we'll find as we finish up the story of Ten Rillington Place on the next episode. Stay tuned. Part two, coming your way. So, that'll keep you guys on your seats for the next couple of weeks. I had to split this one up just because it's such an involved case, And once I actually got into it, I was like, this is like a case inside of a case. There's so much more to it. And you're wondering, how is there more to it? The guy was sentenced to death and he was hanged. But believe me, there's fucking a lot more. (laughs) And we will get to that in two weeks. Uh, So right now, of course, we want to ask you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram... On Facebook and Instagram, it's at Martinis in the Macabre. And on Twitter, we're at martini underscore macabre. You can come to our website, martinisinthemacabre.com. Full catalog of episodes there, fully playable. There's also a full listing of all the songs from Phaser 765 that we've used on the episodes. And there will, of course, be a new one at the end of this episode. So stay tuned till the end. We, of course, want to ask you again, please, please, please go on iTunes, rate and review us. Uh, I know it's a pain in the butt. Even if you have iTunes, you have to get in there and log on. It's 30 seconds. That's all that we're asking. Just help kind of bump us up. Let people know what you think about us. If you can't do that, that's totally fine. Word of mouth, you know, shout us out on Twitter, you know, tag us. Share it with your friends on Facebook whenever we post a new episode. Hey, guys, listen to this. We like this. Anything you can do to help widen the audience would be greatly appreciated. Do you have anything else you want to add?
1: Mm, I try to keep up on Twitter, but I also work. So I always try, like, if you follow us, I'll always text you back or message you saying thank you. But it it may take a day or two because, you know, I work six days a week. So,
0: yeah, I try. And I try and stay up on the Facebook. I just recently went back to first shift. And although it is better for my sleep, I still do work 12-hour shifts. So I come home and I literally have like an hour before I have to go to bed. So I try and see Billy and the boys before I go to sleep. But I, I definitely see everything that you guys post and try and respond. It just may take me a little while. Not as quick as we used to be, but that's just because of the different hours and everything. And all my days off... I'll sit and talk at you all fucking day. <laughs> that, that's my jam. Sit and talk with you guys. It's great engaging with you guys. Seeing you guys post stuff on our page. Post whatever you want on there. If you find something creepy or funny or something related to true crime or paranormal or a mystery, feel free to share it on our page. We like having you know the interactions with you guys and seeing what different things you bring to our humble little page. And there's also the fan base page, which is friends who like martinis and the macabre. And usually if I share something on one, I try and share it on the other one as well. I don't know if Billy does that, but I do. I try. He tries. Aw, you try. You get a gold star. Can I have a sticker? You can have a sticker. I don't fucking want it. Fine. I'll take it. Uh, You can't have it. It <gasps> goes to the fans. That's okay. And that still stands. We've extended it. If you would like a Martini's in the Macabre sticker, take a screenshot of any rating, review, um, post mention, you know, tagging us, anything like that, take a screenshot of it, send it to us in an email or a message. And our email is martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com. There's also a contact page on the website you can go to if you don't want to do that. Or just send us an instant message on Facebook or Twitter, personal message. With a screenshot, give us your address. Bam, we will send you a sticker. Mm -hmm. I will do that for you because I love you guys.
1: And stay tuned. If I remember on the next episode, I'll open with a great story where I told a toddler to go fuck themselves (laughs) at Walmart.
0: (laughs) He did. And I do want to add before we go. For all of you people that haven't followed us on Facebook and didn't hear about the whole story at Applebee's that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, one more little fun tidbit from the night. Our oldest son, Fazer, who does the artwork for the show, of course, we thank him tremendously for that, and also does the music that I put on the end of every episode. He was eating his chicken wings and bit down, and a molar that he had that was loose fucking came out while he was eating chicken. He was like, uh, so this just happened. He had a tooth. (laughs) And try as I might, he wouldn't leave it as a tip.
1: We tried to get him to leave it on the table. but Yeah,
0: the guy was coming and picking up the the dishes and the trays and, you know, his food came out on a little metal tray with a piece of, like, what is that? Parchment paper on there. I was like, just leave the tooth in the middle of it. He takes it back. This is a fucking tooth.
1: Put the tooth in the chicken strip. Just like just wedge it in there.
0: And, and the thing is, they messed up when they brought him out his first batch. They brought him barbecue instead of the hot buffalo sauce chicken wings, and so they would always wonder, "Is this what you think?" Because we screwed up your order. <laughs> you just left us a fucking tooth. This,
1: does this happen to every restaurant you go to? If it doesn't go your way, you rip out a goddamn tooth <laughs> out of your face.
0: You know, like when you leave one penny as your tip, and that means, oh, that was really shitty service. I'm not happy. How is your? What do they think about
1: a tooth? How was your night, Parker? You remember the table, the woman that beat her kid? <laughs> well,
0: I didn't beat him. I just hit him in I the found eye. A
1: tooth, a human fucking tooth,
0: <laughs>
1: in the celery stalk. I don't think he likes celery at all. <laughs> They're fucking weird.
0: Yeah. We thought that whole tidbit was funny because he was like, I don't know what to do with this tooth. And it's like can't just leave it on the table. Then they're gonna think really weird things about us. But then, no. Little Nugget, he just wow. Yeah. Yeah,
1: he just re- he won up to everybody. Yeah.
0: He he played his whole hand that night and was just like, no, my mom didn't beat me. She just hit me in the eye. Oh, hurt my heart more than my eye. <laughs> and you know, no one probably hurt him, but now everyone in Applebee's thinks I'm a complete fucking crazy woman because of the howls of laughter that I let out of my body. She's, oh my god.
1: She's a steamrolling bitch. <laughs>
0: Sorry, Applebee's. I'm Sorry, sure. we just tried to have a normal family night dinner. And we got kids losing teeth, and evidently I beat the other one. I'm not sorry for a
1: fucking thing. That (sighs) was great.
0: Yeah. Best dinner night ever. Hashtag Raising Them Right. All right, guys. I think that wraps it up for this episode. Of course, come back in two weeks where we'll finish up the story of 10 Rillington Place. And stay tuned in just a few moments for a new song from Phaser 765. Until then, stay safe. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. When they say woof, woof.
1: That's how I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is really good. What is this? He said it like kagogi or something like that. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I said, is that beef? And he was like, "kegogi." I said, um, moo? And he said, kagogi. I was like, oink, oink, oink. And he went, woof. And I was like,
0: oh. <laughs> oh, no. And then you went. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, it wasn't bad. I
1: don't know how to put it. I'm not a monster. I just didn't know. I didn't know until mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. Don't judge me.